so much for joining me this is the third segment which will be wrapping up the first episode then we'll be moving on to some darker topics in episode two so without further ado let's get to it who is isa idam the life history genealogy prophecy predestination and modern identity of the biblical esau as it is written jacob have i loved but esau have i hated Romans 9.13 Esau was a designing and deceitful man. Book of Jasher 26.17 The legacy of Esau Edom To help answer the question of who is Esau Edom, the first necessary step is to examine the racial and genealogical history of Esau and his descendants. Esau was the firstborn of Isaac and thus was the heir to the birthright derived from the direct racial lineage of Adam to Noah to Abraham. Thus, Esau was racially an Adamite, a Semite, and a Hebrew. Just as Esau despised his birthright when he sold it to Jacob, he also despised his race by marrying strange women outside of his race. These interracial marriages were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah, Esau's parents. The descendants of Esau from these marriages became known as Edomites or as Edom. The Edomites also possessed some Israelite blood by intermarriages as in the case of Solomon. Esau and the Edomites dwelt in Mount Seir, which God gave to Esau for a possession. This land was also known as Idumea. After the conquest of Judah by the Babylonians, some of the Edomites who had mixed with the Jews in their land resettled with them in Judea. Two centuries later, all of Edom was driven out of Mount Seir. The Nabataeans now occupied Mount Seir, and the Edomites were driven into the old territory of Judah. The Maccabean family had ruled Judea from 166 to 37 BC, and under Judas Maccabee recaptured the city of Hebron from the Edomites in 164 BC. During the time of John Hercules, the nephew of Judas, the Judites, were again faced with the hostility of the Idumeans. Hercules confronted the Edomites, causing a decisive change in the relations between the two factions. John Hercules conquered the whole of Edom and undertook the forced conversion of its inhabitants to Judaism. 
Henceforth, the Edomites became a section of the Jewish people. Thus, at this juncture of time, the Edomites were then incorporated with the Jewish nation, and their country was called by the Greeks and Romans, Idumea. But the tide turned in favor of the Edomite faction when Julius Caesar made Antipater an Edomite procurator of Judah in 47 BC. When Antipater was killed four years later, his son Herod gained power but was rejected by the Judites. Herod truly gained the support of Rome. With a Roman army at his heels, he returned to Palestine and after a six-month siege, he captured Jerusalem and became king of Judea in 37 BC. Herod was a shrewd and unscrupulous tyrant and was despised by the Judites because he was an Idumean and not of their own stock. Herod hated the people of Judah and one of his first acts was to execute 45 of the leaders of the old aristocracy to eliminate any rivalry for leadership. Having secured the kingship, Herod next destroyed the priestly line of Hercules, the last being Antigonus, who taunted Herod with his Idumean origin and asserted that the kingdom should fall on one of the royal family. Herod even rebuilt the temple as it was in ruins from repeated sieges, part of which Herod was responsible for destroying in his attack upon the city. Thus the temple of God became Herod's temple. We thus find that in the years just before the time of Christ, the area of Judea or southern Palestine was inhabited and controlled by Edomites, who usurped the Judite name, land, and heritage. Under Hyrcanes, the Edomites were forced to be part of Judite Hebrew culture, but under Herod, the Edomite faction had usurped their heritage as its own while rejecting its God and religion. Confounding the matter is the fact that true Judites had intermixed with Edomites, Babylonians, and the other alien stock since the time they returned from the Babylonian captivity. The land was not the kingdom of Judah, but a nation of Jews. The Edomites thus became known as Jews, a term derived from Judah, the true royal ruling line from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they were not of Judah. During Titus' siege of Jerusalem, Idumeans appeared before Jerusalem to fight in behalf of the Zealots who were besieged in the temple. About 97,000 inhabitants of Judea were taken captive, and an unknown number had fled either before or during the siege. This is the last mention of the Edomites as a people in history. Yet Bible prophecy indicates that Edom would be an enemy of Israel in later times. We find that their only connection to a present-day people and religion is with the Jews and Judaism. We thus need to trace back the origin of the Jews to see who they are and how they fit into the puzzle of who is Esau Edom. The Jews of today fall within two main types, the Sephardic Jews and the Ashkenazi Jews. The Sephardim are also known as Spanish Jews and constitute about 5% of the Jews in the world. The Ashkenazim are the East European Jews, which were found in Poland, Russia, Germany, and Western Asia. This group of Jews make up 90% of the so-called Jews in the world. Many reference in historical sources have unequivocally identified that the bulk of Ashkenazi Jews were derived from a people known as Khazars. The original Jewish Encyclopedia of 1905 revealed that the main stock of Jews came from this Asiatic people known as Khazars, a people of Turkish origin whose life and history are interwoven with the very beginnings of the history of the Jews of Russia. Historical evidence points to the region of Urals as the home of the Khazars. The Khazars were nomadic people who had no traces of Hebraic culture. They had been following a pagan and sex-oriented religion until they had officially embraced Judaism in 7040 AD while rejecting Christianity and Mohammedism. 
The Jewish author and historian Arthur Koestler also concludes that the majority of Eastern European Jews, and hence of world Jewry, is of Khazar and not of Semitic origin. In the beginning of his book he states, the large majority of surviving Jews in the world is of Eastern European and thus perhaps mainly of Khazar origin. If so, this would mean that their ancestors came not from the Jordan but from the Volga, not from Canaan but from the Caucasus, and that genetically they are more closely related to the Hun, Igor, and Magar tribes than to the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Koestler then devotes the remainder of his 255-page book to prove his premise. For instance, a record of a letter by a Khazar king shows that he traces people to Noah's son Japheth, not Shem, and to Japheth's grandson Togarma, the ancestor of all Turkish tribes. The Khazar government was destroyed by the Slavs of Russia in 1016 AD. Around 1200 AD, the land was invaded by the hordes of Genghis Khan. These two events caused large numbers of Khazars to migrate to Poland and Western Russia forming the cradle of Western Jewry. As the Khazars left their homeland of Khazaria and migrated north and west, they lost their name and became known as Jews. Their Yiddish language and alphabet is not that of the Israelites, but an amalgamation of Aramaic, Medieval German, Slovak, and Russian dialects. The best historical evidence, therefore, shows that the Jews are not descended directly from the Israelites of the Bible, but derive much of their ancestry from the Khazars and other people of Turkish, Asiatic blood. The Khazars are also of Edomite stock, and both stocks make up the present-day Jews. As the historian H.G. Wells states, the Idumeans were made Jews, and a Turkish people were mainly Jews in South Russia. The main part of Jewry never was in Judea and had never come out of Judea. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, the original stock of the Khazars came from the land of Edom. If the Khazars did originally dwell near the Seir Mountains, then the Khazars, and thus world Jewry, are racially of Edomite stock. But how and when did Edomites get to Khazaria? There is evidence that in the 6th century BC, some of the Edomites fled their homeland of Seir and migrated north. After the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC, the Edomites began to press northward. The extent and ultimate destination of this northward trek is not found in history, but it is likely that it brought some Edomites to the region of Khazaria. The Edomites were also cast out of Palestine and dispersed in different directions in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem. Many thousands of these people are known to have migrated northward to Asia Minor and around the Black Sea region. When we talk of the racial mixtures that brought about the Jews of today, we must highlight the events surrounding the Babylonian captivity of Judah. The remainder of the Judah nation, which included some of the tribes of Benjamin, Levi, and Semyon, was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. But at the same time, Edom was also put under Babylonian rule, causing some of the Edomites to be brought to Babylon. When Persia overthrew Babylon, King Cyprus issued a decree allowing the Judites to return to their land and rebuild the temple. However, only about 50,000 returned to Palestine. Some of them had apparently departed to their kingsmen in Europe. However, many of the Judites and Benjamites preferred to remain in Babylonia, becoming part of the indigenous population. Those remaining had intermarried with the Babylonians and Edomites that were in the land and adopted their religion and law, the Babylonian Talmud, which became the foundation of Judaism. These then became the Babylonian Jews. Then, 
many of the people of the land became Jews. Esther 8.17 Although they are called Jews, a term which is derived from the word Judah, these people are not true Judites, but become a mixed or hybridized people, consisting of Edomites, Hittites, Canaanites, Judites, Babylonians, Ishmaels, Huns, Khazars, etc. When they migrated to the other lands through the centuries, they retained their Jew or Judite identity, but brought with them the religion of Babylon. Because of the Jews' mixed ancestry, history is sketchy as to their origins from Japheth, Esau, or other people in the Bible. However, identification of these persons or tribes can also be ascertained by the characteristics, prophecies, etc. revealed about them in the Bible. Since Esau Adam is one of the more predominant figures in the Bible, we will endeavor to ascertain his identification and place in historical and current events by these means. The Characteristics of Esau Edom As with any script, the Bible reveals certain traits, attributes, and characteristics of various actors or characters it talks about. We can thus find in the Bible some attributes and characteristics of Esau Edom, which will help identify who this actor was in history and perhaps in the world today. There is much evidence showing that the seed of Esau may safely be identified with modern Jewry. The first revealing attribute associated with Esau in scripture is that of a color associated with his name. Esau is symbolically associated with the color red. Esau was actually born with this attribute as is described in the account of his birth. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment and they called his name Esau. Here we find that Esau had the physical attribute of being red and hairy, which is contrast with Jacob's appearance, who was a plain man. The red color of Esau was to be a sign that he would later sell his birthright to Jacob for some red pottage. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. The word Edom actually means red, just as the name Esau signifies red. This character thus represents the color red. When we look at the meaning and symbology associated with the color red in both scripture and secular history, we have a better understanding of the nature and identity of Esau Edom and who he is to be identified with. Here are some illustrations. Red is representative of blood and bloodshed. 2 Kings 3.22, Isaiah 1.15. Scarlet or red is symbolic of sin in general. Isaiah 118. The red horse of the book of Revelation signifies war and the ability to cause wars. Revelation 6.4. Esau was to be warlike and live by the sword. Genesis 27.40. The anti-Christian satanic system which ruled Rome was identified as a red dragon. Revelation 12.3. Jews are the most anti-Christian people on the face of the earth. The great beast of mystery Babylon, which was to spread abominations and death to the whole earth, is scarlet or red in color, and the woman on the beast controlling it is dressed in scarlet. Revelation 17, 3-4 Jews are the major promoters of the Babylonian religion called Judaism. The banking industry, which is a part of Red Babylon's economic control over Christendom, is led by the Jewish banking family of Rothschild, which means Red Shield. The red flag symbolizes revolutionary socialism. The socialist movement from its inception up to the present day has been largely dominated by Jewish influence. 
In the Jewish Kabbalah, red signifies bloodshed and also justice for the Jew. The Jewish author and historian Arthur Koestler shows that the Jewish Khazars, from which many Jews are derived, were commonly known as the Red Jews. The color of Jewish communism is red as indicated by such terms as red nation, red star, red square, etc. The Russian Revolution that brought about red communism was planned and financed by Jews, and the revolutionary leaders nearly all belonged to the Jewish race. Red in the West has become a universal sign for warning or danger. Red Edom communism has proven to be a danger to the Christian West. The color red is as predominantly associated with the Jews and their activities as it is with that of Esau Edom. Also note that there are no positive or redeeming attributes associated with the color red in connection to Esau or its association to the Jews. Red is always representative of something bad or negative, such as bloodshed, sin, the Babylonian system, war, communism, etc. Esau and his descendants are possessors of these characteristics. Perhaps the most unique and unusual attribute possessed by Esau is his adverse relationship with God. The script reveals that God never had any love for Esau as he did with Jacob, and in fact, God hated Esau. I have loved you, Israel, says the Lord, yet you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage to waste for the dragon of the wilderness. That God's hatred and anger towards Esau is not a one-time event is conveyed in the fact that Edom was the people against whom the Lord has indignation forever. This is no mistranslation as the same concept is conveyed in the New Testament. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9.13 This hatred by God towards Esau is an attribute that the human heart cannot accept or embrace, and therefore, many will try to explain it away. Thus, scores of theologians have avoided this truth of scripture or have whitewashed it into something more appealing to human nature. God not only hates Esau and is against these people, but refers to them as the people of my curse. Isaiah 34, 5. This curse is not just on Esau, but also his seed and his brethren. But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spoiled and his brethren, and his neighbors, and he is no more. Among Esau's brethren were the Amalekites, which were descended from one of Esau's grandson, Genesis 36, 4 and 12. It was these Edomites, kinsmen, whom God has sworn war against from generation to generation, Exodus 17, 16. God's hatred of Edom is not a temporary thing, but is perpetual. The doctrine that God loves everyone does not stand up in the light of what the Bible has to say regarding God's merciless position towards the race of people called Edom. Although the churches have tried to go after God's true nature, we find that throughout the Bible, God's position towards Esau does not change. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy have I spoken against the residue of the heathen and against all Idumea. Shall I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding out of the Mount of Esau? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you and will stretch out my hand against you. 
there is not one favorable or positive statement in the Bible in relation to Esau. But how does this adverse relationship which God has towards Esau help us to identify who this character is in the world today? To help us answer this, we have to put ourselves in the role which Esau has been assigned in God's script. If God hated you and your ancestors, how would you react and what would you do? By natural reaction, you would be against God and his people and try to prevent them from finding out you are Esau, the one God is against. Knowing that if God is against something, so will his followers. Who is it that tries to conceal their identity as Edom? the one hated by God, by claiming to be Israel, the one loved by God. Only one group of people reacts as though God has a hatred for them, that is the Jews. Why do you suppose the Jews form organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League to monitor and combat hate and to identify hate groups? Why would Esau want to do this? Why is it that it is predominantly Jews who promote the anti-hate laws and other hate crime legislation? If you were Esau, would you not do the same? An Edomite would also want to infiltrate churches and seminaries to get God's people to believe that there is no God of hate, only a God of love and mercy. The Jews have done just that in Christendom. Yes, God hates and has indignation for the Edomite Jews, and if any dare take God's side on this matter, they will be met with great opposition and persecution from those who believe the Edomite Jews are God's chosen people. Much of the world seen today seems to be centered in the region of the Middle East or the area of Palestine. This land is significant from a historical and biblical perspective since it is the land of the Bible and was the ancient site where Israel once lived. But what is its significance today? Zion was the seat of David's rule. It was where his house or palace was erected and where the tabernacle was first set up. Zion was thus the highest and most sacred of the ancient high places. Much is spoken of Zion within the area of prophecy. The term is frequently used as a title for Jerusalem as a whole and its quality as a holy city. In Isaiah 52.1, Zion is used in the prophetic sense and is compared to the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21.2 and 27 as the beautiful city in which the unclean and ungodly are not allowed to enter. It is in the land of this prophetic Zion or Jerusalem which God has promised to gather together his people of Israel. I will take you Israel, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Note that this planting of Israel is something God will do, not has done. To help identify where this place of regathering would be, we need to ask, where was David when these words were spoken to him? He was sitting in Mount Zion of old Jerusalem. Thus, God was not referring to that geological area as the land where he would plant Israel. God said he was going to plant Israel in another place and was not going to bring them back to the ancient high place in Palestine. For once they were planted in this new place, they were to move no more. That there would be a new Zion is indicated by the phrase, daughter of Zion. This was to be the successor of the old Zion and therefore was not the old city of Jerusalem. The nation of America has often been recognized as this Zion of prophecy or the New Jerusalem. The following are some of these proofs. The land Israel was to be gathered into is described as a wilderness or undeveloped land. But with their arrival, it shall blossom abundantly as God gives it vineyards, 
or abundance. Palestine was never a wilderness and it never blossomed abundantly. God was to make Zion's wilderness like Eden. This is exactly what happened in America, which has attained great material blessings and the highest living standard. Zion was to be a land from sea to sea. America is bordered by two great seas or oceans. Palestine is not. In the land where God shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, Jesus Christ was to be set up as an ensign for God's people. In the state of Israel, even the mention of Jesus Christ is prohibited. America is the only nation that was ever legally established as a Christian nation. Israel's restoration was to take place in a land far or very far off, where they would look upon Zion. Since this was spoken in Palestine, it cannot include Palestine. Zion was to be beautiful in produce and resources, as indicated by its wheat, oil, flock, herds, corn, and a land as a watered garden. This is a good prophetic description of America, while Palestine is rather barren in such resources. The New Jerusalem was to be a very large land, as indicated by the need of an angel to measure it. With its length and width being 12,000 furlongs, this could hardly be referring to Little Palestine. There are many other earmarks of the Zion of Prophecy or New Jerusalem in the Bible, which indicates it was not to be in the ancient land of Palestine. Political Zionism Zionism has its roots in a Jewish Messianic movement that seeks to establish an independent Jewish state through which their Messiah, the Jewish people as a whole, could rule the world. The actual transition of Zionism from its practical and philanthropic aspect to its political, economic, and military objectives clearly developed with the efforts of the Jewish Zionist leader Theodore Herzl. Herzl argued that the Jews of Western Europe, even after receiving equal rights, have been unable to assimilate and still comprise a nation within a nation. Herzl warned that the Jews would be pushed into the arms of the socialist revolution and the stability of the present order would be severely undermined. It was therefore incumbent upon the state of Europe to assist in establishing a Jewish state and assuring it of international legitimization. Clearly, not all Jews were in favor of the Zionist plans as they viewed Herzl as somewhat deranged. Leading rabbis feared that Herzl's ideas would provoke a new wave of anti-Semitism. They denounced the Jewish state concept in pamphlets and at conferences. Why then were the leaders of the Zionist movement insistent upon the Jewish state in Palestine and nowhere else? If half of Europe would have been offered to the Zionists, they would still rather have the small barren land of Palestine. Why? It is partly because the Jews are incapable of existing on their own, but in Palestine they could draw Christian support as God's chosen people returning to Zion. There would clearly be great political and financial leverage to be had by possessing the ancient high places of the true Israel people. The leaders from Edom did have a plan. As a counterfeit Israel people, they would use their cover to fulfill Edom's goals, not Israelite ones. Zionism is the best advertised of all present Jewish activities and has exerted a great influence upon the world events than the average man realizes. Because of the admixture of the religious sentiment, it will be rather difficult for a certain class of people to scrutinize modern political Zionism. They have been too well propagandized into believing that the political Zionism and the return promised by the prophets are the same thing. Although the Jewish population in general had no interest in settling in Palestine, the Zionists persisted. The international Zionists, bankers, and plutocrats thus instigated the Balkan War.
The Balkan crisis was like a powdered keg in the European arena, and its repercussions helped to precipitate World War I on July 28, 1914. An Allied victory was expected to result in major territorial changes in the Ottoman Empire, of which Palestine was a part. Lionel Walter Rothschild submitted a draft declaration to Balfour, expressing to him what the Zionists wanted. Two days later, on November 2, 1917, Lord Balfour wrote a letter to Lionel Rothschild, enclosing a copy of the declaration and requesting him to communicate it to the Zionist Federation. This became known as the Balfour Declaration. To assure that Palestine would be in Zionist control, British forces were ordered to enter and occupy Jerusalem in December 1917. The highest of the ancient high places was now secure for Jews to migrate into and occupy. Another political change was needed, such as that only a war can bring. With Franklin D. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill willing partners of the Zionists, it took little effort to bring America and Britain into World War II. The aftermath of the war allowed the Jewish Zionists to establish their international organization called the United Nations on October 24, 1945. In 1947, the British gave up their Palestine mandate and placed the Palestine problem in the hands of the Zionist-created, communist-controlled United Nations. The General Assembly approved plans to place Jerusalem under international control and to partition Palestine into separate Arab and Jewish states. With the boundary lines drawn in Palestine according to the Zionist partition plan, a Jewish state in Palestine was established with the backing of the United Nations. On May 14, 1948, the Jewish state proclaimed its independence under its president, Chaim Weizmann, and Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion. That wraps up episode one. I know there's a lot of information thrown your way, but we're building up the foundation. So as this podcast continues, we can come back and reference a lot of this material. My apologies if you find some of the material a little bit dry. We're going to be adding different elements as this podcast progresses to spice things up. So just bear with us. I do appreciate you taking the time to give this podcast a listen. On episode two, we're gonna be discussing ceremonial magic and sorcery. So until then, remember to keep your network clear from the elementals. <laughs>